So questions can reveal a hidden agenda. Questions can reveal a hidden agenda. For example, in my household where we have adult children, we'll hear the question, does anybody need the car tonight? And though it's a simple yes or no question, there's a whole lot more to it than just that. That question means that there's been a plan that's been devised, that has been tweaked, that has been now implemented and is now set in stone and just lacks one little thing, and that is the transportation piece of it. And so the question comes. There's an agenda to it. Oftentimes, questions reveal an agenda. In a more serious way, the Pharisees, the religious rulers at the time, brought a question to Jesus, but the question wasn't really about the question. The question revealed a hidden agenda. And as we go through the book of Mark, which we are in this series, as now we've turned the page, as we get closer and closer to the time where Jesus goes to the cross, we're going to see more and more warfare, more and more conflict, more and more things happening as Jesus makes his final steps to go towards the cross. So the Pharisees, in the spirit of that, try to trap him. They're trying to trap him with a difficult question, and they want to see where he is, but Jesus has always saw right through it. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 1 to 12, and in this we're going to see this trap. We're going to see truth and I'm going to leave you with some takeaways. Trap, truth, and takeaways. I want to say in the beginning that when we preach through the Bible systematically uh, in what we call expository preaching, you come across topics that you have to preach because it's there. And today is one of those topics. Uh, the topic is divorce. That's what the question that the Pharisees bring to Jesus, though that wasn't their aim. And we're going to get into that in a second. Uh, but we're going to be talking about divorce a lot this morning. And I just want to say at the beginning um, that this is a place of grace, and I'm not uh, taking this topic to pull any skeletons out of the closet. Uh, in almost the 30 years of ministry, I understand that uh, divorce is very complex. It's very painful. Uh, there's lots of different reasons for it. I get that. Um, this is just something as we as a church of grace, have to come across because we also want to be people of the Bible across your church. That's something that is important to us. And if we go through a book systematically, we can't skip over things uh, that may be hard to talk about, but instead we dive into them. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, like I said in the last service, I didn't write this. Uh, my job is just to faithfully present it to you. And so I'm going to do that with all the pastoral grace uh, that is here because uh, that is what we should do and that's the right thing. So just know that that's where we're headed and diving into, uh, but there's a lot more to that story in Mark chapter 10. So I want to dive in and look at the trap, the trap that was set for Jesus. Let's look at the first four verses of Mark 10. It says, He, Jesus, set out from there and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. The crowds converged around him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. He would go into synagogues and teach the people. Some of the Pharisees, who are the rulers of the religious uh, time, came to test him, asking a question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. 
there's a whole lot more happening in those first four verses than what we realize just through a plain reading of the Scripture. The Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce. However, they really didn't care about divorce in the slightest. They had an agenda, and divorce was just the flavor of the day to bring their agenda. They could care less about what Jesus felt about divorce. It was just a topic of choice to set a trap, and it was a good one based off of what was happening. So they decided to take a Bible passage from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, and Moses wrote this, and he is addressing the issue of divorce at the time. And that passage says this, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. This became the verse of Jesus' time where this was happening to direct them in how they proceed with divorce. And so this came up because there's lots of different views about this verse at that time. And so they wanted to trap Jesus to see which side he is going to side with because that would help them in their aim to get rid of Jesus. So just like today, when we approach the Bible, we have to interpret what it means in its original context before we apply it to our lives. So many times people will read something and boom, try to apply it, but you, have to, you can't skip this step of interpretation. We observe and we read what the Bible says, observation. Then we interpret what that meant into the original audience at the time. The Bible has one meaning, has one interpretation, and we have to get that first before we apply. Observation, interpretation, application. We need to be people of the Bible, and we have to do that well, or else we're going to be led astray. In Jesus' day, it was no different. You had rabbis and Pharisees who studied this verse and who interpreted it through a very strict theologically conservative lens, almost hyper-conservative, and then you had another school of rabbinical thought that looked at this verse and interpreted it through a very liberal theological lens. And this was the trap that was laid that they were trying to get Jesus to pick which one he is a part of. There was two schools of rabbinical thought at the time about that verse. The first one was set up by a rabbi named Shammai and became the Shammai school of thought. It was more theologically conservative. He was a, a rigid traditionalist. He was beyond conservative. He had rules on top of rules on top of rules. Those who had a more freer way of interpreting Scripture were very nervous about him, and he was nervous about them. And the Shammai school looked at that passage of Deuteronomy 24 that Moses wrote and when they took that piece of that passage that said, find something indecent about her that would permit a divorce, their school of thought said that that was talking about a serious sexual sin just short of adultery. Now you might say, well, why wasn't adultery tied into that? Because in that day, adultery was punishable by death. So you didn't have a divorce. If you were found with adultery, you were put to death. So it was leading up to that, a serious sexual sin. That was the meaning of that verse in Deuteronomy 24 in this school of thought. It was very narrow. It was very decisive. It was this one thing. There was another school of thought of the day. 
It was called Hillel. Hillel was named after another rabbi who was a very charismatic leader at the time among other rabbis. He had a strong following. He was winsome. He was kind. He was politically successful. He found ways to make the Bible say pretty much anything you wanted it to say. In Jesus' day, many of the students who were in the highest office of rabbi leadership were under Hillel's school of thought. It was the flavor of the day. It was very popular. And in the Hillel school of thought, they took that phrase, find something decent, indecent about her that would permit a divorce, and they pretty much said that that could mean anything you want it to mean. It was a more broader, liberal way of looking at it. If a woman let her hair down in public, that was grounds for divorce. If she talked to another man at the marketplace, that was grounds for divorce. And the people who followed the teaching of Hillel and that school of thought were getting divorces left and right. Multiple marriages, multiple divorces, repeat, repeat, repeat. So the Pharisees laid this trap before Jesus. They were trying to figure out how he would interpret the Old Testament. Would he line up with Shammai or would he line up with Hillel? And that was the purpose of this question. They could care less of what he thought about divorce. They wanted to trap him in this because they knew that in this very tight, tensioned situation, if they can get Jesus to pick one or the other, then that would help them in their mission to get rid of Jesus because they knew what side they need to stoke the fire with. So that's what they were trying to do. That's what this was all about. They could pit the right side against him to try to overthrow him. So as so often is the case when Jesus is confronted with situations like this, Jesus does not enter their debate. He's wiser than that. He appeals to a higher standard. He doesn't give them the satisfaction of picking a camp. He instead reveals God's heart and he reveals the truth. And he explains why Moses wrote what he wrote. And he does so not by entering into the argument of Deuteronomy 24, but he goes before Deuteronomy 24 to Genesis chapter 1, 27. And that's what we see here in Mark 10. Jesus brings the truth. So let's take a look at that. Look at verses 5 to 11. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of your hardness of hearts. But from the beginning of creation, going to Genesis, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now we're going to unpack this because Jesus addresses some things in it. First, he brilliantly did not side with either school of thought because Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, the verse that they pulled out, doesn't sanction or command divorce or determine if it's lawful. It just acknowledged this practice that was taking place at the time when Moses was leading the people of Israel And the Jewish people wanted limits of what was happening, and Moses put those in to keep divorce and remarriage from becoming this casual husband and wife swapping scheme of the day, which is where it was headed. Second, God permitted, not commanded, but permitted divorce as a concession in that time, and Jesus says because they were hard-hearted. 
Hardness of heart had nothing to do with being mean or being cruel or being cold. In that day, when you used the term hardness of heart, it meant that you were spiritually immature, that you weren't open to the wisdom of God, that you weren't open to hearing what God thought and you were going to do whatever you wanted to do anyway. So this was taking place and Moses was in a situation where he had to put restraints around this. Moses in Deuteronomy was addressing a current reality that was happening at the time. He was not saying it was lawful or accepted. He was trying to describe what was happening. And since the text in that time did not come flat out and say one way or another, these schools of thought emerged, hence the tension, hence you have the perfect trap to ask Jesus which side is he on, and that's what took place. Jesus refutes this by going to Genesis chapter 1. He brings clarity. That's what he always does. He talks about where God ordained marriage as the joining of one man and one woman, and he says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus did away with all the loopholes of the Pharisees And he declared that marriage is an act of God, not an act of the courts, not an act of any institution, even not an act of the church. It's an act of God. They could not trap Jesus because he appealed beyond their schools of thought to a higher, clearer view of God's truth, which is the point of the text. However, now that we're here, even though the point of the text was this trap, we do see some things that God says about divorce that we should consider. We can't just pretend like they're not there. We have to dive in to be people of the Word. Matthew wrote a similar account of what happened, and his is more fuller in Matthew chapter 19, 1 to 13. And so we're going to look there to see when is divorce permitted according to Jesus. Again, permitted, not commanded. If you look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus says this. He says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The word for sexual immorality, that's the clause of permission. That's the Greek word pornea. It's where we get our word pornography. Jesus is saying here that a Christian can get a divorce if a sexual sin has taken place. I word it like that because obviously this includes adultery, but that word pornea and the way Jesus used it here is an umbrella word for all kinds of different sexual immoral acts. It kind of houses everything, not just sexual immorality or adultery and unfaithfulness, but a whole bunch of sexually immoral things. It was the umbrella word. So if you think about what is an indecent sexual act that shouldn't ever happen, that was covered under that word. And that's where Jesus gives allowance. So in summary, Jesus is saying a divorce can be permitted in cases of sexual immorality. Now there's another circumstance when divorce is permitted in the New Testament, but we get it not from Jesus, but from the Apostle Paul. Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 7 people who are unmarried, then he addresses Christians who are married, then he addresses Christians who are married to people who are not Christians, and that's where we're going to focus. It's complex. 
Paul addresses the things that Jesus did not address, and Paul has the same authority as Jesus. He was an apostle, and Jesus gave him that authority. And Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife. I'm going to explain that phrase in a second. And the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. Paul knew in Corinth there were situations where many people began to follow Jesus, but they were married. And one spouse began to follow Jesus, become a Christian, and another one did not. So that left a situation that had to be addressed. And in the passage, he talks about, and he says, if you can remain there, remain, and the other spouse will be made holy by the one who is a Christian. That doesn't mean they're going to become a Christian or considered a Christian in God's eyes because of the Christian in the marriage. What he means by made holy is that they will be influenced towards the things of God. So he's saying if you are married to somebody who's not a Christian and you can, and that non-Christian wants to maintain that marriage, stay in there because your life will be a witness to lead that person closer to God. That's what Paul was saying. However, he says, if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. The believer is no longer bound to that marriage, and a divorce can be permitted. So in summary, when is a divorce permitted? Again, not commanded, because if it's permitted, it doesn't mean you have to do this. I encourage you to work at staying married and to reconcile. But when is a divorce permitted for a Christian? When there's sexual immorality or when there's an unbelieving spouse who leaves the marriage. Now that's the interpretation of what was said. To apply this interpretation to today is not easy. In 30 years of ministry, just about, I can tell you, divorce is messy. And as some of you know, it's messy and it's painful and it's complex. And when it comes to applications, sometimes it's foggy. Sometimes it's clear-cut, but few times it is. It can be messy. There's two people involved. There's multiple things happening. What took place? What's the circumstance? Are they Christian? Are they not? Did this happen before they were Christian? Did it happen after they were Christian? It doesn't always fit in the box. It's complex and it needs wisdom. And it needs to be handled gracefully, truthfully, and pastorally as we apply this. I want to give five takeaways when it comes to divorce, but before I do, I'm going to give an umbrella statement that's important. I want to begin here because it's, it's very, very important that you hear and understand this that if there's abuse involved, you should separate immediately. If there's abuse involved, you should separate immediately. Physical, emotional, sexual, verbal. If abuse is taking place, immediately separate. The Bible is not saying remain in an abusive situation. You separate, take time to pray, get counsel, seek wisdom, and go forward from there, but you have to get to a place of safety first. That's the overarching umbrella to these five. Now let's dive into the five. First of all, number one, if you're married, enrich your marriage. 
If you're married, enrich your marriage. Don't let your marriage just exist. Don't let it just be something where you become roommates that are there sharing the same dwelling. Pursue a dynamic, growing marriage. Be intentional about cultivating and caring for your spouse. This is critically important. I wrote this sentence as I was studying this passage, and I thought it was worth having some remembrance of. I wrote, the weeds of divorce begin to take root in the garden of a marriage that just exists and has no life. The weeds of divorce begin to take root in the garden of a marriage that just exists and has no life. So be intentional about cultivating your marriage. Go to marriage conferences, go to seminars, read books. And what I'm going to really encourage you to do, because I know many don't do this for lots of reasons, but I'm going to push on you here. Pray together as husband and wife. Pray together. Prayer produces intimacy with relationship. Prayer produces intimacy in a marriage. And some of you are saying, you know what? That, I, I have a hard time praying with people. I have a hard time praying out loud. I don't want to pray in front of my spouse because I'll sound stupid. I don't know what's going to happen. Push through that for crying out loud. If you're a little uncomfortable with that, that's okay. It's time to get uncomfortable. It's time to grow a little bit. Push through and pray for your spouse and with your spouse. This produces intimacy. It's Father's Day. Men, if you're married and you're a father, I'm going to exhort you to begin taking the initiative of this and praying with your wives. Begin to have a marriage that prays together. It's critically, critically important. Get through and push through the awkwardness, push through the weirdness, and just do it. There's plenty of books that you can get on how to pray as a couple. I encourage you, if you need to, get that and just read the book together. It'll walk you right through it. But if you're married, enrich your marriage. Takeaway number one. Number two, resist judging those who are going through marital difficulty. Resist judging those who are going through marital difficulty. There's a ton of shame around this topic of divorce. Christian friends should not add to that. I can guarantee you, you do not know the whole story. Since we don't know the whole story, we should always hold back judgments. Be careful not to follow the easy road of gossip and judgment. Instead, fight for those couples in prayer. Ask God to bring healing. Ask God to surround them with who he is and resist that. Fight for them in prayer. Number three, don't be quick even if you have grounds for divorce. Don't be quick even if permitted. Though God permits, he can do miraculous things. Even in the most difficult circumstances, leave room for God to move and bring reconciliation. I've seen times where even a divorce has already taken place and God has moved and brought reconciliation. It's worth going slow. It's worth careful consideration. Here is where the ways of God and the ways of the world part. In the world's eyes, divorce seems like the easy out. It's simple, it's quick, it's easy. Let me tell you, as a product of a son who went through divorce with his parents, it is never easy and it never, the effects rarely ever, ever go away. It's not the easy way out. It's worth pausing and taking careful consideration. 
It's painful to many and all who are involved. It feels like the easy way out, but sometimes it's not. I'm not saying it's never warranted, it's never permitted, but we should hold it in the regard that it really is. Number four, don't take your cues from culture, listen to God. Don't take your cues from culture like all the things we need to view this through God's eyes. As I was looking through this, I was shocked as I read stories of celebrities who've gone through divorce in the last five years. And I was shocked as most of it looked at it as a thing of personal growth that they put right up there with fitness and diet and exercise and getting divorced. I saw it as a cop-out to paint over pain and guilt and shame. We don't do that as God's people. We work through this, and I've seen so many do it in a way that honors God, and I'm proud of them, but we work through this, and we view marriage through God's eyes, not our own. It's a covenantal thing that we have to take into consideration. And finally, number five, give grace to those who have been affected by divorce. I want to say, if you're here and you've been through divorce, know there's hope and healing through God. Know that there's grace for you. That does not mark who you are. It does not mark your life. It's complex and hard, and I get that. God is able to heal. God is able to restore. God will carry you and bring you on. He still has a plan for your life, no matter what happened or how it took place. He is there for you. And one thing is for sure, with God, there is always, always hope. Many of you know Rick and Kay Warren. Rick Warren is the pastor of Saddleback Church. He wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life. And this is a story that his wife, Kay, wrote about. It says, in many ways, Rick and Kay Warren were one of the most public ministry couples in America. They seem to have the ideal marriage. But Kay Warren admits that their relationship descended into what she called marriage hell. Married at the age of 21, the brand new marriage took an instant nosedive. Kay Warren writes this, We didn't even make it to the end of our two-week honeymoon in the British Columbia before we knew our relationship was in serious, serious trouble. We argued about our arguments, and they began to layer resentment upon resentment upon resentment. It was a perfect setup for misery and disenchantment. Healing started to come, but it was an agonizing process, she writes. I don't approach this subject from the Hallmark card version of marriage, but from the blood, sweat, and tears of the trenches where a marriage is in difficulty and is forged and by God's grace sustained in our situation. I know what it's like to go through something very difficult like this. I know what it's like to choose to build our relationship to seek marriage counseling again and again and again when it seems useless, to allow a small group of people who could walk through this with us into the struggle, to determine one more time to say, let's start over, please forgive me, I was wrong, I forgive you. I know what it's like to admit that my way isn't the only way to see the world and to try to imagine what it's like to be on the other side of me and to choose to focus on what is good and right and honorable in my husband instead of what drives me crazy to turn attraction to another man into attraction to my husband. I know it's like to be cracked open by catastrophic grief and share it with your spouse when you're in such a different, weird place. Listen to this. Each of us is not the other, who the, each of us is not who the other was looking for, but each of us is who the other desperately needed to become the person we are today. Yet it's also been the very best thing that has ever happened to either of us 
We wouldn't be who we are today without going through that difficult time. The shrieks of iron sharpening iron have often sounded like gears grinding on bare metal, but the result has been profound spiritual growth in both of us. Following Jesus is not always easy, but it's worth it. Following Jesus is not always easy, but it's worth it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you know all our hearts. And Father, I ask now that you would help us to understand more deeply what you're saying here. And Father, I just want to pray for those whose marriages may just be existing and have no life. Would you cultivate and enrich those marriages in our church family now? God, I want to pray for those who have divorced in their past, who tried everything they could not to go that way and it still went that way. Will you minister to them your Father's love and grace? Lord, I want to pray for those who have been affected by divorce and what has happened. And God, will you minister to them as well? Lord Jesus, we just come to you as people who live in this broken world and we ask that you meet us in this place. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for the fact that because of who you are, we can always go to you, and we do that now fully. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.